both from the Gospel of Matthew. First Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18, just a few verses through verse 24. Excuse me, 25. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So far from Matthew 1, let's also turn a few chapters forward to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised." And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing from Psalm 20, stanzas 3 and 4. What we've read and also what we've just sung is in connection with the topic for this 
uh, Lord's Day's afternoon sermon, which comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day, chap- uh, Lord's Day 11, and that's on page 526 of your books of praise. Lord's Day 11, and there the question is, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because he saves us from all our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No, though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 11, 12, and 13 all focus on the names of Jesus. And when we think about that, we might wonder, why does the Catechism spend so much time just on the names of Jesus? It seems almost like splitting hairs, seems a little excessive to spend this much time just on a few words. Well, the reason for that is that the names and the titles, some of those names are in fact titles, they say who Jesus is, and therefore they also say what we believe about him. So the name of Jesus, or the names and titles of Jesus, are in fact a confession of faith in and of themselves. They show what it means to be Christians, to be followers of this person we call Jesus. And in fact, many Christians have died for the name of Jesus. And of course, to them, the name was a lot more than just just a name. It defined for themselves their own identity as Christians and our identity also as a church. And, And so learning the meaning of the name matters. Let me give you an illustration from, from my own experience. Uh, as many of you know, I've spent many years in, in, in Brazil, or many months at least, in Brazil. And, and Brazil is, is a Christian country. Nearly everyone there calls themselves Christians. The, the percentile is somewhere in the upper 80s, uh, perhaps even the, the lower 90s. Nearly everyone claims the name of Jesus. And you'll, if, you, if you drive through Brazil, it's interesting to see it on, on the bumper stickers of most of the cars on the road or on the houses along the side of the road. You find the name of Jesus everywhere in Brazil. And yet, our church actually does mission in Brazil, even though percentage-wise, they're a more Christian country than our own. And, and so we might ask, why? Why do we do mission in a country that nominally at least, is more Christian than our own. Well, if you take a closer look, you also can observe that Brazil has some of the highest murder rates in the world. Four out of the ten most violent cities in the world 
can be found in Brazil, and all the rest are also in South America, which is as Christian in name as, as Brazil. Crime is everywhere. Drugs, uh, that, that's their stronghold. That's where uh, they reign the most. The same is true of alcohol, prostitution, violence, stealing, homicides. These are far more prevalent in Brazil even than they are here in Canada. So we might ask, well, what's going on? Why is a country that confesses the name of Jesus almost more than any other country in the world, why is that also one of the most violent, most dangerous, most uh, crime-ridden countries in the world? Well, to answer that question, you need to ask, who is Jesus to these people? What does the name Jesus mean to these people? And the same is true of, of Europe in the time when the Catechism was written, which is why it spends this, this amount of time on the names of Jesus. Almost all of Europe was Christian, and yet immorality, crime, prostitution, alcoholism were just as rampant as they currently are in Brazil. And, and additionally, they, there were very different ideas of what it means to be a Christian, And so the Catechism rightly asks the question, what do you mean by the name Jesus that you claim to believe in? What does the name Jesus mean in in your, what does the name Jesus mean to you? And is the person who Jesus really was, is that who he is in your way of thinking? And so the point is, it's not enough to just confess the the simple name of Jesus. Who you believe that Jesus is makes a great deal of difference in your faith and in your life. So the goal for this week and for the next two are to look at the names and titles of Jesus and ask, what do those names mean and why do those names matter? So... Let's take this as our first point, just the simple fact that names do matter. Names are very important, and you see this especially in the Bible. Many times people are even renamed, and that renaming is significant. It shows what God is going to do with someone, how God intends to use someone in his plans. Take, for example, Abraham. His name used to mean Abram, which, or used to be Abram, which, which meant something along the lines of exalted or high father. And, and God changed his name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. And, and that indicated what God intended to do with Abraham. The same is true of, of Peter. You see that in, in Matthew 16, which we read together. Peter's name was Simeon. It was the number one most common name in Israel at that time, Simeon or, or Simon. And God changed his name, or, or at least added to his name, the name Peter, which means rock, which indicated God, Jesus intended to use him as the founder of the Christian faith. He preached the first sermon after the Holy Spirit was poured out and founded the Christian church. And you can think of many more examples. Perhaps some of you already are thinking of some. You might think of uh, Abraham's wife, Sarai. Her name was changed to Sarah. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jedediah's name was changed to Solomon. That one's not so well known. 
But the point is that the names, especially when God changes names or directly commands someone to be given a certain name, it indicates what God intends to do with, with that person or intends that person to be. And the same is true of the name Jesus. The angel Gabriel specifically commanded that the name Jesus be given to this boy who would be born to Mary. And, and the name Jesus, it's a Greek form of the name Joshua, or it's an English form of the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And, and the name Joshua simply means Yahweh, uh, Yahweh saves. And that name was given intentionally. Matthew 1, verse 21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's a critical point. It's a critical question. Jesus means Savior. And you have to ask the next question, saves, saves from what? Well, for many Jews, including even for Peter, and you see this in Matthew 16, they had a different idea of what that Savior would save them from. Peter also was waiting for a savior, but he was looking for a savior from the Romans. He was looking for someone who would overthrow the Romans and establish the the kingdom of, of Israel. And that's why in Matthew 16, Jesus takes the time to tell his disciples what was going to happen in the near future. He says, I'm going up to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and on the third day to be raised again. That didn't jive with Peter's vision of a Savior. And so Peter took Jesus aside, and you can just imagine his boldness to take the Lord Jesus aside and rebuke him to his face. And he says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Well, Peter had a very different idea of what a Savior would do, what a Savior would be. And, and you might ask, well, isn't it a fair assumption on Peter's part to, to say that the Savior, the Christ, would come and deliver them from the Romans? You might even think of the angel Gabriel's own words in, in, Luke, in Luke's gospel where he says to Mary that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. And, and you can understand how Peter might walk away from that sort of announcement with the impression that, that Jesus would overthrow the Romans and rebuild Israel. The problem is, though, the Jews should have understood by now that, that Israel was only under Rome because of a much bigger problem, which was Israel's sin. This was the consistent testimony of all the prophets. Just for example, Isaiah, right at the beginning of his, of his ministry, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, what does he complain about? The, the dominance of other nations or the destruction of Israel? No. He says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. That was the problem. And that was the first and biggest thing that Israel needed to be saved from. And so it's really amazing that Peter and the other Jews of Israel's day missed the biggest thing that the Savior came to save them from, looking for a Savior from the Romans, when in fact what they needed was a Savior from the biggest problem that was staring them all in the face, the problem of their sin. 
And that's, that's why you find it, it so often, in, if you read through the gospel, so many times people realize that Jesus was the Christ. And you notice, what's the first thing Jesus tells them? Be quiet. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. He didn't want people to know that he was the Christ or to run away with the idea that he was the Christ because they didn't understand yet what that Savior was supposed to do. Well, that's Peter's and that's the Jews, the ancient Jews anyway, understanding of the name Jesus. And it shows us at least that the name matters and rightly understanding what the name stands for matters very much. Let's go to the Brazilian idea of the name Jesus. You can ask many, many Brazilians, if you were on the streets, you, you could ask them, why do you put the name Jesus on your car or on your house? And they would say, well, I believe that the name Jesus will make me successful. Or the name Jesus, having the name Jesus on my house, will give me victory against people that don't like me, against my earthly enemies. Well, is that what God meant when he gave the name Jesus to our Savior. So we need to ask that question, what kind of Savior do you see in Jesus? What do you mean when you confess the name Jesus? There are other opinions of what Jesus saves from. Some will say Jesus came to save us from poverty. And that there's, there's some truth to that. Isaiah 61, a verse that Jesus himself quoted, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Some would say, Jesus came to save us from injustice and, and oppression. And that's, that's also true, even in the same verse. He continues, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the opening of the, opening of the prisons to those who are bound. There's some truth to that. Some might say Jesus came to save us from, from racism and discrimination, and, and there's some truth in that. Isaiah 2, all the nations shall flow to the mountain of the Lord. Many peoples will come, and he shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for the peoples. There's truth in that. Jesus came to save us also from hatred and discrimination and things like racism. But Matthew 1 verse 21 says something different and something much bigger, much more important. He came, he will save his people from their sins. That's the root problem. And, and that, that identifies what lies behind all of the other things that the Savior would come to save us from. It's not ultimately the Romans. It's not ultimately, Jesus didn't come ultimately to save you from financial difficulties or to save you from people that don't like you as the Brazilians would see the name of Jesus standing for. Nor did he came to fulfill your life goals as much of Canadian Christianity teaches that Jesus came to do. He came to fulfill your dreams, many people would say. That's not, in the first place at least, what Jesus came to save you uh, from. Nor did he even come to save us in the first place from, from that kind of man-to-man injustice like racism and oppression. Those are part of his goal. He will accomplish those things. But the angel Gabriel says in the first place, he came to save us from our sins. So then we need to understand what exactly does that mean? In what sense does he save us from our sins? Because to be fair, oppression, racism, discrimination, things like that, 
Those are sins. Poverty, too, is a result of, of sin. So what's wrong with having that kind of Jesus that, that saves you from, from those things? Well, you might ask the same question of Peter then. What's wrong with having a Savior that saves you from the Romans? Isn't that a perfectly legitimate idea of a Savior as well? But Jesus rebuked Peter and rebuked him very strongly. He said, get behind me, Satan. Well, why did Jesus respond that way to Peter? Well, because Peter missed the main thing that Jesus came to save all of us from. He was, and, and that meant he was looking for ultimately a different kind of Savior, a Savior who would do something else. His kind of Savior didn't need to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. That didn't fit into his vision for a Savior because estrangement from God and guilt before God were just not major factors in, in his in his vision of what salvation meant. Jesus, it's true, he will turn oppression, racism, and things like that around. And I believe he'll even do that in history, according to the testimony of of many of the prophets. But before that, Jesus, if he's going to accomplish that, he must first save us from our sins themselves and from the fact that they estrange us. They, they bring distance between us and God. That's the main thing that we need saving from. Every other evil in the world follows from that. And that's why that Savior, that Jesus, had to die on a cross, as we saw on Friday, that horrible, excruciating death, and why he had to rise also on Easter Sunday. And that's something that Peter, at that time, didn't understand. He had no, no sense of why a Savior would need to do something like that. So we need to understand, when we confess the name of Jesus, what we're saying is, this Savior came to live the life that we ought to have lived but didn't, and to die the death that we ought to have died, and bear the punishment that we ought to have borne, and he bore it in our place. That's the main thing that he came for. That's what makes him our Savior. And so he saves us, first of all, then, from the guilt of our sins, the fact that our sins make us guilty before God. That's what he died for. He died to carry that guilt to the cross and crucify it there so that guilty people like you and me who who turn to him and are counted with him. We saw some of that this morning, how we're counted with Christ so that we could be brought before God without being obliterated by God's wrath. So he came to earth to suffer the punishment of sin that had your name and my name on it. And if he, hadn't, if he hadn't in the first place saved you from that, then in the end it really doesn't matter what else he might have saved you from. What good does it do to save the world from racism and oppression and all these evils, which, which are evils, they do matter, but it does no good to save the world from that while not saving guilty sinners from the wrath of God that comes immediately after this life. That would be the most useless mission for a Savior ever to undertake. So he came, first of all, then, to save us from our guilt. And in the second place, then, he does save us also from our corruption, the sin that still exists within us. And it's important to understand that he saves us from our guilt first. 
our corruption only afterwards. It's only because he bore the wrath of God that he can now also work in your life. It doesn't work the other way around where Christ, Christ promises to forgive your guilt if you'll first clean your life up. No, we can only begin to clean our lives up because we have the hope that we're already saved because of what he's done saving us from our guilt. That's, the, that's what gives us the, the impetus and, and the desire to change. So he saves us from both, but he saves us first from our guilt, which subsequently saves us then through the gospel uh, from our corruption. And so here's my question then for you. On what basis, if he's the Savior that brings you to God, on what basis do you draw near to God? What's, what's the argument that you have that gives you the right to come before the throne of God? Now, I'm assuming when I ask that, that you do draw near to God. If you don't, if you're, if you're a guest in our midst or, or even a, a baptized Christian who, who doesn't daily draw near to God... Then, then, um, then the message for you is, is more simply this. God didn't send a Savior that you don't need. If you don't draw near to God, God's word declares that's a problem. And, and you are estranged from God and facing the wrath of God. God didn't send you a Savior you don't need. Christ didn't die uh, the most unimaginably horrible death on the cross just in case you might need him. He died because you do need him. And, and if, if living what you consider to be a fairly good life uh, to other people, and, and you consider yourself not all that bad of a person, if that's good enough to bring you before God without, being, without facing his wrath, Christ wouldn't have gone to the cross. He didn't come to save people who might need him. He came to save people who do need him. So if you're not drawing near to God, if you don't have any meaningful relationship with God, then you need to wake up your own conscience and open up your own eyes to the depth of your sin, the seriousness of your guilt, and your need for a Savior. There's no other way to God than through the Savior that God has sent. But, but if, you are a, if you are a Christian, then my question for you is this. On what basis do you draw near to the holy, righteous God? Do you come with an awareness, a, a profound awareness of your own sin and guilt that does stand between you and God apart from Christ? Are you aware of the fact that your guilt makes you worthy of being cast out of his presence forever and that the only reason that you exist and the only reason that you could ever dare to come into his presence is because you're covered by someone else's blood? That needs to be a reality for you if you are a Christian. Or do you come, on the other hand, believing that God accepts you because, well, after all, you still, you still live a pretty good Christian life. You've done a pretty good job of, of being a Christian. That kind of thinking is what this Lord's Day is especially aimed against. So the Catechism asks the question, Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints in themselves or anywhere else 
also believe in the only Savior, Jesus. The Catechism says, no, if that's how you come into the presence of God, if that's your excuse why you believe God won't punish you, then you cannot claim to be believing in the Savior, Jesus. Either you're saved by your own perfect law-keeping, or you're saved by Christ's law-keeping in your place. Those are the only two options, and none of us meet the first requirement. Now, this question in the Catechism, as as I'm sure you uh, noticed, this question was written primarily in response to to Roman Catholic teaching, and especially the practice of prayers to saints. One of the most fundamental concepts of, of that culture was that there's this this what they call the treasury of merit and Jesus contributed to it Mary contributed to it and and you can possibly contribute to it and other saints in the past have also contributed to that and and that is what ultimately saves us that treasury of merit that covers our our guilt now they recognized of course that most of us are are sinners all of us they would have acknowledged our sinners uh, and, and that most of us don't have a, enough merit on our own to be saved. So, so they weren't entirely blind to the, to the reality of sin. But what they, what they believed and what they taught is that we ought to do as much penance as possible and as many good works as possible to accumulate as much merit as possible because that reduces the amount of punishment uh, that we need. And one of the things that they taught you can do, and they still teach you can do, is pray to the saints so that some of their merit also can cover some of your guilt. Now, if you think I'm, I'm painting a, a straw man caricature uh, of Roman Catholicism, listen just to this statement from the Roman Catholic Catechism, which is still in use today. And it says, The treasury of the church is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. And this treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, so her works are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. And in this treasury too are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission in the unity of the mystical body. Sorry if you got lost in that. But listen to the the last sentence here. It says, In this way they, so the saints and Mary, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body of the church. So that, according to the Roman Catholic Catechism, which is still in use today, is the merit by which our penalties are paid, by which our punishment is is reduced. It's not just Christ's merits and what Christ did, it's also what the the Virgin Mary did and and what the other saints did, and, and also including your own penance and your own good works. You might also consider this statement about the Virgin Mary, also from from the Roman Catholic Catechism, where it says, The motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave at the Annunciation, meaning when the angel Gabriel announced that she was pregnant with Jesus, and the consent which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. And, And here's the key phrase, Again, sorry if you got lost in that, but here's the key phrase. Taken up to heaven now, she did not lay aside this saving office, 
but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. That's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's the teaching that this Lord's Day pushes back against. So is this possible? Can you and can other saints before you save up merit for yourselves and use that to reduce God's wrath against you, reduce the punishment that is due to you? Well, if that was true, then Christ had no reason at all to go to the cross. Why would Christ have gone to the cross and borne what he bore, as we saw on Friday, if there was some other way for us to get there? And that's why the Apostle Paul taught so clearly, by the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in God's sight. All of us are sinners. Even the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7, he said, all of us, including to his own disciples, are evil. Nobody has extra merit that they can give before God. We're all debtors to God. We're all, every one of us, even the best of us, in need of extra merit in order to be saved. So either we are saved as undeserving sinners by the perfect work of Christ, and that work alone, or else we minimize our sin, we excuse our sin, we say our sin is not as bad as God says it is, and we, as John says, we make God out to be a liar, in which case, then, we don't need Jesus at all. Either he's a complete savior, or he's no savior at all. Now, of course, in our own churches, we don't face the issue of prayers to saints very often, even though Roman Catholicism certainly lives very strong here in Ontario. But even if you don't pray to saints, the same question does still apply to you. How are you at peace with God? Do you consider yourself at peace with God because you live what you consider to be a fairly good Christian life? so long as you don't think too hard about what God's law actually requires of you? Or are you accepted by God because Christ lived a perfect life in your place and died the death that you ought to have died so that you could come into God's presence? The catechism is right. Either Jesus is a complete Savior or those who accept is not a complete Savior, excuse me. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior or those who accept him as their Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. So it matters what we mean by the name Jesus. You can confess the name Jesus and mean something very different than than what is meant in, in Scripture. And that matters then also for how we relate to other sinners. How do you know a true Christian when you see one? Well, one of the first marks you ought to look for is humility. The recognition that I am, a, I am a guilty, broken sinner, forgiven out of no merit of my own, but only by the sacrifice of Christ. I'm an unworthy sinner who owes his entire life to God because Christ died while I was still God's enemy. That's what a Christian looks like. And, and you can see that even in, in someone as, as revered, as great as, for example, the Apostle Paul, whom the, the Roman Catholics would also consider a saint. He calls himself the chief of sinners. So recognizing yourself as a grievous sinner 
daily in need of God's grace is one of the first marks of a Christian. A proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. And pride and rivalry and unwillingness to live with other Christians, considering oneself better than other Christians, is one of the first indicators of a false and hypocritical faith. Although, of course, all of us do struggle against that kind of pride. But pride has no place in the Christian life. If you call Jesus your Lord, then you follow a savior, not a lawyer, not an advocate for your own righteousness. And another basic mark of a Christian that follows from that then is that someone who calls Jesus their savior also then obviously hates the sin that he came to save them from. You can't call Jesus your savior while at the same time having no desire in the end to actually be saved. So a Christian hates the sin that Christ came to die for. And so again, let me conclude by by saying again, it matters what we mean by the name Jesus. Do confess that name, brothers and sisters, but also then confess everything that stands behind that name, that scripture puts behind that name. God sent that Savior because you need that kind of salvation and you need it more than you need anything else in the world and because on our own we would never get it ourselves so then confess that savior and cling to that savior for everything that you need amen